A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ko tō tato au horihori tēnei. Hei hōta ke e pānaki te pūtaio, te taio, me te kaupapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance. You're with Our Changing World on Radio New Zealand National and now the Solar Revolution. This year will capture more of our energy from sunlight than ever before. Photovoltaic cells are a growing renewables industry and at Victoria University of Wellington, Justin Hodgkiss and Joe Gallagher are part of a team that's designing the next generation of printable and flexible solar cells and exploring new materials that convert light into electricity. Justin tells Veronica that science, technology and economics have now come together to fuel a clean energy revolution. This year we will have more solar photovoltaic capacity and more photovoltaic power, or PV power, than ever before. And it's been doubling every two years. But it's, this is not actually something out of the blue. It seems that way. But it's actually been doubling every two years for the past 20, 25 years, ever since PV photovoltaic panels were, were first invented. So this is actually completely, completely normal scaling for technology. And this is something that um, a lot of people don't really recognise. But if you look at, for example, other technologies like flat-screen TVs, you'll see the same exponential scaling in the performance and the availability and the price reduction, etc. So it's really only now that we're noticing it because it's reached some critical mass. That's right. The prices have been exponentially falling. And again, this is exactly expected. As you make more of something, you figure out how to make it cheaper. Same applies for flat screen TVs. And now the price of PVs, which you could quote in terms of price per watt. So right now, the price is just below 30 US cents per, per watt of power. So that means a 10 kilowatt system on your house globally would cost around $3,000. Ten years ago, it was more than ten times that cost, around $40,000 for the same system. So now the price has fallen enough, again, through entirely predictable scaling, that it's actually affordable for people. So the point so no longer just people who are doing it for reasons of wanting to do something good for the environment. Now it's affordable for just about anybody? That's exactly right. Of course, it's more affordable if you live in a sunnier place because the price of the system doesn't change, but you get more energy out of it if you live in a sunnier place. So in New Zealand, the sunnier places would be the Bay of Plenty, Nelson, Marlborough, places like that, and Northland, unfortunately, not yet Wellington. Not so much but, Wellington, but, no. <laughs> but the price is only going in one direction, and that's down. And this is entirely predictable scaling. Do you expect that there'll need to be an increased push though because we will have to think about switching to renewables and perhaps look for ways of being a bit faster than this normal scaling? Yes. Yeah, so is there scope for that? There is definitely scope for that. So the, the PV technology that we're using today, the science for it was done more than 20 years ago um, and that was silicon photovoltaics. 
So now so we're, the usual solar panels. That's the that panels that you would buy that are 99% of the panels um, around the world are silicon, and they work very well. And they're proven, and the price reduction has really been through manufacturing engineering. Nowadays, we're working on next-generation PV cells that have the potential to be much cheaper. So in my lab, we're working on printable PV cell technology, and that is where the active layer, instead of silicon, which you need to process as a big solid panel, uh, the, the active layers that we're looking at that absorb light and create electricity are made from polymers that can be printed as an ink. Can you talk me through the specifics of that? Joe, you've got some of those inks right there. Can you tell me a bit more about it? Yeah, so these inks are, uh, as you would expect, a paint pigment or something. We can dissolve it up into a, into a liquid, a solution. And then what you can actually do is, after some mixing, we can make a very, very thin film of that on a substrate. Um, in this case, it's a, it is a solid substrate. But because this is just forming a film, you could effectively put that on a flexible substrate, and it could be nearly anything in that sense. So uh, even as long your as corrugated iron roof or anything? It just needs to be transparent in the sense for what we're doing in here, but otherwise, yes, you could just spin it on, well, make a film on anything. Uh, What's the actual polymer? So it's called a conjugated polymer, and that's because it has a structure that has, in chemistry, we would say that it's got double bonds and single bonds, and what's important about that is that its electrons are arranged in a way that make it absorb light and conduct electricity. The structure of these things when you look at the bonds, it's actually quite similar to chlorophyll in photosynthesis. That also has these conjugated molecules that give it colour. We work with chemists who design and synthesise these polymers. Many of them are also commercially available. And we're looking at the reasons for the differences between these polymers. Because since it was discovered that you could make PV cells from these polymers, Many people around the world have made literally thousands of such materials to make a more efficient one, and most of them have failed, and we're trying to find out what makes a good polymer. So the films that we study of these polymers are incredibly thin. They absorb light very strongly. Because of that, you don't need very much in order for it to effectively act as a, as a solar cell. One kilogram of these polymers can spread over 5,000 square metres of material. You've got a very efficient way of making a lot of panels, a lot of PVs uh, for very low cost in terms of materials. But it's all about finding efficient materials. Can I, though, if you translate that into roofs? So if you estimate a roof being 120 square metres, uh, one kilogram of material will get you about 42 roofs. Uh, so 42 houses. And that would be completely covered? Completely well, covered, yeah. yeah. So those, those homes would be more than self-sufficient as far as electricity is concerned? Yes, absolutely, more than self-sufficient, yeah. Be feeding back into the grid, really. Yep, yep. So one of the big advantages that you can have with um, these organic PVs is an ink. Obviously, ink printing has been well established and it's been done many, many times. One thing you can do with these PVs is, because you can print them on flexible substrate, you can do roll-to-roll -roll printing where you have a giant roll of uh, your material you're going to print your PV on, basically passes under a roller, it's printed and you just cut it. Basically like printing newspapers. It's cheap, it's mass produced. Instead of having newspapers firing out the other side, you've got PVs ready to go. So how do you then go about finding the materials or identifying the ones that are most efficient? We have uh, many different types of materials from collaborators and materials that we can buy and they 
differ in many different ways, many of them subtle, the way that uh, the side chains are arranged. And all of these things, they affect the color, the, you know, the way they absorb light, they affect their crystallinity. And that turns out to be a very important thing. You need them to be slightly crystalline so that they can conduct charge very well, but not too crystalline because you need them to mix together. And so these are the types of molecular parameters that we're probing, and we probe how that relates to their ability to convert light into electricity. In fact, if we go into the next door lab, we can take a look at exactly how we investigate that process. So between the two labs where we've just come out of and into this laser lab, you've got these double doors. What's the reason for that? Yeah, so that's kind of an antechamber between the two labs, and it's because there's a pressure differential between the labs. So this optics lab that we're in now has a higher pressure so that it's kept cleaner. So that means any dust gets blown out of the labs uh, when you come in and out of the doors rather than sucked into the labs. Now here we're looking at a large table full of lasers, right? Yes, so we have uh, a big laser there in the middle and then we have a whole forest of mirrors and lenses and crystals and things like that. And those are all designed uh, to feed the laser into the sample, which is a um, photovoltaic cell in our case. And all of the optics basically just stare the light, they change the color of the light, change the polarization. And the goal of this experiment is to use laser pulses, which are about 100 femtoseconds long. So that's a femtosecond is 10 to the minus 15 seconds, a millionth of a billionth of a second. So we're using laser pulses that are that short to kind of take a strobe photography movie of a solar cell absorbing light and creating electricity. And the reason that we need such short pulses is because the time scale that light is converted to electricity is on the femtosecond to picosecond nanosecond time scale. So whereas our normal experience in life is in seconds and minutes and hours, the experience of electrons in materials is on femtoseconds and picoseconds. So we need to match their time scale. Is that where the efficiency gain comes from? Yeah, we've found uh, quite recently that the difference between a good polymer PV material and a bad polymer PV material happens on the sub-picosecond timescale largely. And so we've been really focusing hard on that timescale to find out exactly what makes good charge separation versus bad charge separation. Because the whole process comes down to absorbing light and separating positive and negative charges, because that's the first step of creating current. Once you've scanned a number of materials in here, how do you go about improving whatever you find? You'd identify the best one, but how do you then improve that? We get a series, a library of compounds that we'll, we'll obtain from, from a chemistry lab, whether that's here in, in New Zealand or overseas. Uh, and then from that, you start looking at the charge generation character, and you combine that with your knowledge that you've got of the film morphology. So how do these components mix together? If you can combine it with that knowledge, you've now got two pieces of information that can help steer you in a direction. So then you discuss with collaborators and everyone involved and say, we've got really good you know, photophysics, charge generation in this polymer. This has got these characteristics in the chemical structure. Its film looks like this. And you start to zoom in and really say, all right, well, these are the three aspects that seem to be giving us the best out of this library. You then say to the synthetic chemists, when's the next generation? 
you know, what can you do to it? And they take that knowledge you've sort of gained from multiple techniques, especially charge generation, and sort of come up with the next step by changing. You know, it might just be a small change or it might be a couple of changes, but then you get another library of compounds and you go through the process again. And if you look ahead, what is the sort of efficiency you can expect? Because that was one of the old criticisms of solar power, was that the efficiency would not make it economic. I'm quite optimistic that we're going to get uh, over 15% power conversion efficiency. So to put that into perspective, the silicon PV panels that you would buy today for your roof would be on the order of 15%, 16 17%. And the thermodynamic limit is around 30%. So 15% is actually not, not bad at all. Um, now, when I first started working on polymer PVs, the efficiency was around 4%, and that was around seven or eight years ago. Now the efficiency is 12%, and that's been through this type of iterative research process that Joe was describing, whereby measurements from labs like ours feed into the design of new molecules. And so that has led to efficiency increasing to 12%. The way that things have been going in the last few years, I think we're definitely going to get to over 15%. And that's actually enough as long as we can ensure that they're stable. Now, something else has happened in the last few years during this great progress of efficiency, and that's a new class of printable PV material has been discovered. And these are called organometal halide perovskites. So these are a hybrid inorganic organic material and they are already 24% efficiency so they're already at least as efficient as silicon PV cells and they can be printed but the main issues are figuring out how to make them more stable right now that they're, they're not stable enough to, to actually be manufactured. Either of these new materials if we were to scale solar electricity generation up from where we are now if we were to move into that as our main source of electricity, would we have enough materials to do that? Think global scale, you know, if we were to take it seriously and look into a clean energy future. So if I just take the polymer PVs, um, so one kilogram is enough for 5,000 square metres. So that the material demands are very low, and these are just organic polymers made of, made of carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, sulfur, elements like that. So, so we have plenty for that. Uh, I, I would say that the things that we would need to think carefully about and possibly innovate new solutions um, are other components like the electrodes. You still need electrodes. Um, previously we've been talking about the active layers, but that needs to be sandwiched between electrodes that take out the electricity. And one of those electrodes needs to be transparent because light needs to get through into the active material. So um, there are there are t challenges to to generate electrodes that are that are cheap and made from abundant materials, but I'm sure that these innovations will go hand in hand with the development of active layer materials. Can either of you foresee a future where we have solar energy as our main source? Absolutely. I think the interest is definitely there from the public and also the business sector in terms of it's an attractive prospect. Leaps and bounds are being made. As uh, Justin mentioned earlier, you can predict the scaling law of the technology. I think definitely the business sector and manufacturing will continue to improve and there will definitely be a future for it in, in the general public. Two things recently have really convinced me that uh, solar PV is for real. One is that when you look at the growth of PV capacity worldwide, and this is an exponential growth, 
But if you compare that with predictions, so first of all, in 2006, the International Energy Agency and Greenpeace made predictions of solar PV, and they were way off the mark. Their predictions were way lower than, than reality. They revised their predictions in 2010. Their revised predictions have been completely blown away. So that was one eye-opening thing for me. The second thing was that a few months ago, Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest people in the world, and he's made his money from infrastructure investments. He has put billions of dollars into solar, and he, one of his infrastructure companies, has just signed a deal with a solar PV farm in Nevada that will sell electricity from the solar PV farm at a price around about two-thirds cheaper than the grid in, in the U.S. that is powered by fossil fuels and nuclear. So, and this is purely, purely financial. And when things become purely financial, things happen really quickly. That was Justin Hodgkiss, Deputy Director of the McDiamond Institute, and you also heard PhD student Joe Gallagher. They're both at Victoria University of Wellington. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, you can find more stories on our webpage, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.